Father, we thank You. We thank You for this document that we hold in our hands tonight. We thank You for the entirety of the Scriptures, but we thank You for this ancient Word handed down, penned by Luke, inspired by Your Holy Spirit. The acts of Your Spirit in and through the church. Father, You thought of everything, and You saw fit to give us not only Your Word in terms of teaching and doctrine, but example. You fill the Scriptures with people as, as human and as feeble and frail as we are. And Lord, You worked through them. And it's such a joy and a pleasure to be part of this book. To be the extension, Lord, of the mission that was begun by Jesus, passed along to the apostles and handed down to the least of the apostles by his own estimation, Paul. And we're still here, and we're still preaching the kingdom, we're still preaching Jesus, and we will until you come, Lord. We pray for the strength to do so. And we pray tonight as we conclude this this marvelous work, this book, that you will fill our hearts with a fresh anointing, a fresh enthusiasm, a fresh confidence to carry on and to not give up on the mission that is set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in chapter 28, verse 14, at the end of the verse, Luke writes, Thus we came to Rome. Thus we came to Rome. How had they come? They came thus. Through slander in Jerusalem, through a long stint in the slammer at Caesarea. Thus they came. Through stormy seas and snake bites, through everything it seems that the enemy could throw at Paul, anything to divert the man and destroy the mission. But through it all, Paul stays on mission. One of the most marvelous legacies we have of the Apostle Paul is not only his writings, but his faithfulness, his sictuativeness. And his confidence to do so, regardless of all situations, he stayed on mission. And what was the mission? Let's be absolutely clear. It was Jesus and the kingdom. Jesus and the kingdom. Because a kingdom without a king is just dumb. Take king out of the kingdom. Alright, I'm just trying to wake you up tonight. Kingdom without a king is just dumb. That's the trouble with ISIS. I mean, at its core, there's no real king. There's Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who claims to be the caliph of this, of this brutal terrorist movement, but he's self-crowned. No proof of connection back to Muhammad. That's what the caliphs claim, is that they're connected some way or another to Muhammad. Not that that's a marvelous claim, but that's what he claims. The guy's a terrorist, not a king. By the way, that's the trouble when groups within the church think that we can build the kingdom on earth without the king. 
or when we are arrogant or prideful or puffed up or misguided enough to think that we can establish the kingdom and then we will hand it over to Jesus, as it were, when He comes on a silver platter. We are not as great as we think we are. To preach kingdom come without the king is just dumb. Luke 17, verse 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here or there. For behold, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now that has been wrongly interpreted by some to be the kingdom of God is within you, therefore an allegorical, ethereal thing. No. Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst, and the king was standing right there. In their midst. You want to see the kingdom? Here I am. Jesus was right among them. The king was there. And Paul's mission was then from day one all the way to his death. His mission was for king and kingdom. For king and kingdom. Don't forget that because that's our mission. Thus they came to Rome as Paul had long desired. Remember back in Acts 19, he said, I must also see Rome. After Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. He wanted to get there. He desired to go there. Thus, they came to Rome, just as Jesus had promised. You recall in Acts 23.11, he said to Paul, Be of good cheer, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now, I think that's great. And Jesus proclaimed, you're going to Rome. Paul had previously proclaimed, I want to go to Rome. The desire of Paul's heart coincided with the will of God. You could say, Paul's heart and God's will rendezvoused at Rome. And that's how it works. Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will do it. Why did Paul want to go to Rome? Because Jesus wanted him to go to Rome. And he delighted himself in the Lord Jesus. And if you want to know God's will for your life, the first place to start is delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the King. Seek His will, His desire, His purposes. And the more your will is aligned to His, the more you're going to be walking in that place of delight and in that place of desire. He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. As I delight myself in Him, I am aligned with Him and the desires of my heart become the desires of His heart. I want to go to Rome because He wants me to go to Rome. Now, warning. Just because you delight yourself in the Lord and He gives you the desires of your heart doesn't mean it's going to look like you think it's supposed to look. Or or, or like you expect it to go. It it rarely pans out the way we plan it. Rarely. And yet, once we get through it and come to the other side and finally arrive at our Rome, we can look back and see everything Jesus did to accomplish bringing us to the place that we desired to be in the first place. But again, maybe not the way we thought. Thus, Paul came to Rome not as a tourist, but as a prisoner. He didn't arrive in that mighty city wearing flip-flops and a fanny pack. 
He came wearing chains. He came as one who was on trial. Paul, the prisoner. And yet, Paul was still the evangelist. He said to the church at Ephesus, chapter 6, verse 19, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. For two years, Paul will be in Rome before he's finally brought up on trial before Caesar Nero. Two years, and he will write letter after letter. I'll explain that more in a moment. But in the writing of those letters, he said to that church, to Ephesus, Pray for me, I'm an ambassador in chains. What a weird statement. Where else can somebody be an evangelist and be so tied down and yet have such a dramatic impact as Paul did? I am an ambassador in chains. Delight yourself in the Lord. Align your desires with Him. It probably won't go the way you think it will. But honestly, I think I'd rather go the way He wants. Even if, even if as I'm going, it doesn't feel good. The seas are stormy, the snakes are biting. You know the deal. I don't think it's how Paul planned to go to Rome. I think he planned to get a posse with him and head in there, ride in there, meet with the church. Have a glorious reception. But instead, Paul will go in chains. Thus we came to Rome with Paul, the prisoner. Verse 16 of chapter 28, we'll pick it up right there. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. I'm going to give you seven things to note. Six or seven. Number one, Paul was under house arrest. He comes into Rome and he is under house arrest. Now that's not the way it was for everybody on the prison ship. Everybody who made it into Rome, all the other prisoners who were with Paul. Remember there was a large contingent on that ship that crashed at Melita. 276 people. Roman centurion, the soldiers, and prisoners. So they get to Rome and in the King James translation of Acts 28.16 we're told, When we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So they don't cart Paul off to prison. The rest of the prisoners, apparently, they did. They were all taken off, but not Paul. And this is how it worked. Paul was allowed to rent his own place. But 24-7, he was chained at the wrist to a Roman soldier. The soldiers would come in shifts. They would trade off. One would come in, chained to Paul, the other one would unchain, he'd chain up the new guy, he'd leave, and and this would go on 24-7. As they got to have breaks and leave and go home to their families, Paul was never alone, never in two years. Always chained to a soldier. House arrest. Can you even imagine... I mean, there are are times where I have to go in the other room and it's not far enough. Chained? Not because that's when Cheryl's not home, see, is what I'm saying. Can you imagine, though, seriously, not being Paul, but being one of the guards? What would it be like to be chained to Paul? Even if you're just working an eight-hour shift, man, that would be bizarre. If in the midst of the storm, Paul had the wherewithal to take bread, give thanks to God in the presence of all, 
Acts 27.35. What was it like? What did the soldiers witness day by day by day chained to Paul the Apostle? Wow. We're told from his Roman confinement that Paul wrote his prison letters, his epistles. These prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, we know those four were written from prison in Rome as he's chained up to these different guards. And this cracks me up. But to the church at Philippi, Paul wrote the following. Philippians chapter 4, verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How did they get saved? They were chained to Paul. They were a captive audience. Now, sometimes we fear sharing the gospel. Perhaps you have, because you don't want to hold anybody captive. You you don't want to corner someone. Listen, their freedom may very well depend on you cornering them with the gospel. Why are we so squeamish? For goodness sakes, you're offering them freedom into eternal life. Why would we ever hold that back? These guys are chained to Paul, and I am convinced because of it, many of them became saved. You can't sit there chained to Paul eight hours a day, listening to him talk to people coming and going, and writing his his epistles. And you know Paul was working on every single guard. Do you know Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you my story. Hey, we got eight hours and you ain't going nowhere. Let me tell you my story. I mean, talk about who who was in prison here? Who was held captive? Paul or the soldiers? They were a captive audience to the gospel every day as they were chained to Paul. Would that we would hold more people captive with the message of the gospel. Corner a few more. Stop people in their tracks and with boldness bring the only chance at eternal freedom they may ever have. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now granted, we might use that personally and say, I'm holding every thought captive to Christ. As these thoughts rush into my head, I want to hand them over to my spirit, which is in the control of the Holy Spirit, so that He can take them captive. And I think that's good theology. It's also good theology to hold the thoughts of the world captive for Christ. Someone wants to bring an argument about something foolish, you bring Jesus. The only hope. And don't feel bad about holding someone captive when you're offering them the freedom of the gospel. So they're chained to Paul, and we're told after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. These are all the Jewish leaders of Rome now. He says, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. 
Now under house arrest, Paul calls for the Jewish leadership in Rome to be gathered to him. They come and he attributes his chains to, number two, the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel. Hatikva. The hope. You students of these things know the Hatikva. That is the national anthem of the nation of Israel. Hatikva. It only lacks one thing. I, I went back today even and I read through the, the lyrics to that national anthem and it talks about the hope of Israel and the return to Zion and it looks back even to David in so doing. But the Hatikva of Israel lasts, lacks one thing. Just one. A king. It lacks a king. All of the hope for Israel today, all the hope seems to be misplaced to Zion. To the land. Hey, the land is promised by God, but the land without the king, the kingdom without the king, is again dumb. They're still looking back to David rather than forward to the son of David who is the king of Israel. The one who is coming. But Jews understood in Paul's day, when he uses this phrase, I am in chains for the hope of Israel, they knew what he was talking about. Messiah. Messiah. Anyone familiar with the writings of the prophet Jeremiah would know the hope of Israel, that's Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 14 verse 8. Oh, hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress. Or as we sang tonight, Jeremiah 17, 13. Oh Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water. Even the Lord. I mean, Jesus called himself the living water, didn't he? He called his spirit living water. Jeremiah said, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Who was Jeremiah's praise? The hope of Israel. The Savior. The Lord. The Messiah. And there is no other hope in this world. There's no other hope. No other hope of healing. No other hope of salvation. The hope of Israel. Truly the hope of all humanity is Jesus the Messiah. Paul says that's the reason for my arrest. Oh, to be able to say that. I'm here in this place, in these chains, in this position. For good or for ill, I am here because of the hope. Now think how ironic that is. As the Jewish leaders stand around, this man chained to a Roman guard, and he says, I'm in this position for the hope. Can you say that? We talked about snake bites on Sunday. We talked about storms last week. Can you, in the worst place in your life, say, I am in this place for the hope. I'm here for the hope. I am here because when I preach the hope of the world, Jesus Christ, in this wretched state, the hope is more brilliant than ever. You know that. People don't get it. They don't understand. When you're talking about hope, and you seem to be in a hopeless position, how can you talk about hope? Let me tell you about Jesus. Pull up a chair. Slap on a chain. Let's talk about Jesus. He is the hope. There's no blame in Paul's declaration. There's no shame in it. It's just matter of fact. I'm here because of Messiah. And I wanted you guys to be the first to hear it. 
See, Paul was always to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. The hope. Peter called it the living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Regardless of the circumstance of your life, this hope will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And we are in the last time. And this is a hope that carries beyond all life's circumstance. Hey, listen. Paul in house arrest, in chains, in in, in Rome is not living the dream. He's living the hope. He's living the hope. Verse 21 They said to him, and this is interesting, they said, we've never or neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. So they're a little confused by this. They're perplexed. They've been called to this Paul, to see Paul. And they come. But they don't even really know why. And here's this man in chains who begins to proclaim, I'm, I'm here for Messiah's sake. And, and, and he describes what happened back in Jerusalem. And they're like, huh, we didn't hear that. This is news to us. Isn't that weird? The Jews in Jerusalem vigorously pursued Paul as far as Caesarea. And the entire two years that he was in prison in Caesarea, they stayed at him. Every time there was a new proconsul, a a, a new pilot to come in, a new procurator, they were there with their lawyers, ready to fight the case again, ready to take down Paul. But curiously, once he leaves Caesarea, we hear nothing more from the Jerusalem Jews. They go quiet. Word never got to Rome. Why not? couple of possibilities. Number one, the accusers just got bored. And that'll happen. Once they set sail from Caesarea, well, then the Jewish accusers figured, okay, it's done. He's out of our hair. He's off our continent. He's out of our, our problem. He's, you know, let them deal with him. And they just go on about their business. They stop thinking about it. Do you ever worry what people are thinking about you? Well, let me give you a little piece of advice. They probably aren't. We worry a whole lot more about what people are thinking than they are really thinking. Because we all tend to be, and I would just proclaim myself as this, self-centered. We are worried about our world. You know, everything orbits us. And that plays out, even the most humble of life, that plays out when, when something's said, something's done, something's passed along, and we think, oh, that person's just thinking about me all day long. They have bad thoughts about me. They're too busy. Trust me. They are not thinking. You know what they're thinking about? Themselves. So Paul is out of sight and out of mind. He's gone, man. And so perhaps the accusers just got bored. But I think there may be one 
other possibility as to why no word against Paul had come to Rome. And that is the accusations were below sea level. Any letters of accusation, anything written up, sent in a file against Paul, would have been lost in the storm in the Adriatic Sea. Floating somewhere out there or sunk to the very bottom of the sea. It never made it to Rome. The people did, but the ship was completely broken up. They lost everything but the people. So there would be no letters, even from the proconsul there in in Caesarea. Nothing to accuse Paul. And so as the Jewish leaders arrived to talk to him, nothing's come this way. Haven't heard. No letters of condemnation. And what a picture of grace. The more I think about it, the more this excites me. There's a whole list of accusations against me. It's called the law. But when Jesus saved me, He sank all condemnation. Micah the prophet wrote in Micah 7 verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And in the same way that any accusations written against Paul would be at the bottom of the Adriatic, so any accusations against you, any condemnations of your past life, man, when you give your life to Jesus, it is sunk. It's gone. Why do Christians want to dredge it up? Why do we want to go back and revisit those things and wallow in the guilt over them when God doesn't even remember them? He has put them out of His mind. He has sunk them to the bottom of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far you have removed our transgressions from us. It's the most glorious gift of grace in the Christian life. My sins are gone. My past, clean. No more looking over my shoulder, wondering when the letter is going to arrive. When the accusation is going to finally hit and everybody's going to know the truth about me? No. In Christ, our sins are sunk. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? If you are in Christ Jesus, your sins are no more. They're cast into the depths of the sea. So Paul is under house arrest for the hope of Israel. But the Jewish leaders, they continue here at verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. (laughs) Well, we haven't heard anything bad about you, Paul, but we've heard about those Christians. And if you're one of them, we're curious what you have to say about that. Number three in our list here, the hostility against the church. Hostility against the church. First of all, these leaders call it a sect. That's the word in the Greek for heresy. It's where we get our word heresy, haeresis in the Greek. This, this heresy, this sect, this breakaway group, this splinter people, 
Yeah, we know about them. They're spoken against everywhere. The word spoken against is anti-lego. Anti-lego, which means opposed to or, or even argued against. Anti-lego. We know about this. And there is hostility toward the church. And my friends, hostility against the church is no new phenomenon. As if we in America 2016 suddenly, oh, people are hostile to the church. This has never happened before. This is unheard of. You should thank God every day you didn't have to go through the first 283 years of the church where millions of Christians were massacred simply for claiming the name of Jesus. We do not have it so bad. Oh, I I agree that people tend to be more and more anti-the church, anti-Christianity, anti-Jesus. I get that. I see that just like everybody else. I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying the whole idea of hostility toward the church, this is a long-standing thing. This began on day one. And these Jewish leaders are witnesses of this. We are aware of the hostility toward this group. We're aware that this group is spoken against everywhere. Anti-Lego. By the way, the word Lego, anti, you know what that means, against. Anti-Lego. Lego means spoken, so it's spoken against. But Lego is the root word for another word, a significant word in the Greek, logos. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. And if they crucified the logos, what makes us think the world will readily accept our Lego? What makes us think, if they rejected Jesus, that they're going to just so easily accept the message of the church? Even though, as we've been saying, it's good news. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's a future and a hope. It's eternal life. Why wouldn't we expect this? Jesus said, if the world hates you, John fifteen eighteen, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And watch this, verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying, note this, about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. There's the mission. Jesus and the kingdom. We see it over and over and over and over in Paul's ministry. We see it in the apostles' ministry. Before that, we see it in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus and the kingdom. That's the message. It's all that counts. It's all that matters. That's what we're here to tell the world. And so he's testifying about the kingdom of God that the Jews will be familiar with because all the Hebrew scriptures testify about the kingdom. And he's trying to persuade them concerning Yeshua. Well, all the Hebrew scriptures talk about Yeshua, Jesus, as well. From both the law of Moses, we're told, and from the prophets from morning until evening. So remember, as Paul's talking to this Jewish contingent, a large contingent at this point, in Rome... He didn't say, turn to the Gospel of John. He didn't say, I want to quote you from Matthew. The New Testament was not put together yet. Only a handful of letters were beginning to circulate, and those only among the church, they didn't have any context for that. He pulled out the scrolls, Torah, the Law, and the Prophets. 
And he began talking to them from the Hebrew prophets and convincing and explaining and sharing and reasoning and testifying and persuading about the kingdom of God and about Jesus from the Hebrew Scriptures. And we're told in verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And there's another thing, along with the hostility against the church, there's the other thing that doesn't change. They all heard the word, but only some believed. Everybody heard what Paul was preaching. Some believed, others did not. My responsibility, yours, Paul's, preach Jesus and the kingdom. The response is not my responsibility. The preaching is, the sharing, the reasoning. That's my responsibility. People are going to choose one way or the other. And you can have 100 people, 150, 200, 1,000 people in a room. You can share the exact same message and some will go, yes, Lord. And others will go, eh. Same message. Some will believe, others will not. John the Baptist said, John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. It is very simple. Life in Jesus or the wrath of God by rejecting Jesus. It's your choice. And I know, I know that there's a, there's a reality every Sunday, every Wednesday, every small group, every Bible study. The reality is some believe. And some do not. I'm not yet sharp enough to know who's who. I'm pretty sure Les believes. <laughs> Cheryl, I, I, I think so. Yeah, Glenn, yeah, mostly, yeah, I think he does. Some believe and some do not. Ask yourself tonight, where do you fall? Do you believe Jesus for eternal life? Or do you not? Jesus said in John 5.23, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Hearing is not enough. Being present is not enough. You will not present a roll card to the Father when you go to judgment. Only Jesus. It's not enough to hear. You've got to hear and believe. And Paul sees this. He sees, number four, the hardening of Israel. He lays it all out from the Hebrew Scriptures, beginning to end, talking about Jesus and the kingdom, clarifying, explaining, answering questions, and nobody could do it better than Paul. And he gets done, and some of the Jewish leadership and the Jews gathered there did believe and would hence join the Church of Rome. Others walked out never to look back and would join the ranks of hell. And Paul saw it and he calls it out, the hardening of Israel. Verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers saying, Go to this people and say you will keep on hearing but will not understand 
You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them, Paul says. And with those words ringing in the air, the Jews are departing. And the hardness of Israel is evident. Go back, Isaiah chapter 6 in the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to see this. About midway through your Bibles, so just let it kind of flop open in the middle and then search for Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Paul is quoting when he says this to these Jews, and it all is so intricately tied together. I hope you see that. How the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament are not separate books, but are one Word of God, absolutely complete in their inclusion and in how they function together. And Paul now calls out the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's commission. And he says, and this is it, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, Isaiah writes, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull. Their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. This commission of Isaiah is quoted six times in Scripture. Six being the number of a man, I find that interesting. Because the problem of mankind is exactly what the Lord said to Isaiah. We see it for the first time there in Isaiah. Four times Jesus will quote Isaiah. In each one of the four Gospels, it's that important. And then twice Paul will quote Isaiah's commission. Here in Acts 28 and further along in Romans 11. And in quoting this, he points out that here's what Isaiah said. Here's what the Lord said. He said their hearts are going to be insensitive. The Hebrew for insensitive is shaman. And shaman means clogged with fat. You may be familiar with that word Michael Jackson used a lot in his music. Shaman! You know. (laughs) Clogged with fat. The Hebrew word for dull ears is kabod. Wait a minute, that's, that's the word for glory, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But the word kabod means heavy. And in the context here, the ears are kabod, they are heavy, that is, they are thick with wax. Waxy buildup, hearts clogged with fat, and eyes dim, shawa in the Hebrew, which means smeared or pasted over. So you can't hear, you can't see, your heart is not doing well. And God says, go tell the people, here's the deal. Render them this way. Render them? Make them dull and dim and clogged? Is that what you want, Lord? No, it's not. You might say, doesn't God want His people to see and hear and understand? And then return to Him. Of course He does. Well, then why did you say this to Isaiah? Because Isaiah's commission reveals Israel's condition. 
His commission is their condition. It's not what the Lord wanted. It's what He would get from Israel. Hard hearts. Dim eyes. Dull ears. These things don't... Gang, listen. They don't result in sin. They are the result of sin. Process that for a moment. The inability to see what God is doing. To hear the voice of the Lord. To receive Him in your heart. That inability does not precede sin. It comes after sin. Sin and rebellion causes the eyes to get pasted over. Sin and selfishness causes the ears to clog. Causes the heart to get weighed down with fatty deposits so that it can't beat and it's no longer soft. It becomes hardened. And the same hard-hearted condition that plagued Isaiah's ministry would plague the ministry of Jesus, would plague the ministry of the apostles, and of course would plague the ministry of Paul. Why? Paul illuminates this for us in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 25, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the fullness of the Gentiles. God knew Israel would reject the message. He knew their condition was Isaiah's commission. And God's word has a twofold effect on us. It either softens the open heart for clarity and vision and ultimately an increase of faith. Or it hardens a closed heart with fatty deposits and waxy ears and pasted over eyes. David Bowie died this week. I didn't know what to think about that. I'm not a big Bowie fan. A couple of his songs, you know, as, as many of you I heard on radio, some of you may be Bowie fans. I hope not too much. Wow, what a life. What a bizarre, twisted, entangled life this man lived. Absolutely a brilliant artist. No question about that. But lost in himself. He, he, he just released, two days before he died, he, he released his final album, Black Star. He always had a spaceman thing going on in his brain. He released Black Star. I watched the first video release from the album. It was released two days, again, before he died. The video is called Lazarus. And it is taken from Lazarus of the Bible. And it is a weird song, man. If, if you get, I, the video doesn't have anything crude or inappropriate really in it. It's just haunting and freakish. The synthesizers come on. It's this dark, heavy music. And, and he begins to sing. And as the pan, camera pans in on him, it pans in on an emaciated David Bowie lying in bed. Looks like he's dying. Well, he was. And he has a a wrap around his head covering his eyes. And where his eyes are, are are two, they look like tiny little metal protrusions. Just really kind of freaky looking. And in the first line of the song, as he's lying there in bed, wrapped in this blinding look, he sings, look up here, I'm in heaven. I don't know. I don't know where his heart was. I don't know what his faith was, but I can tell you what the video showed, and that was unseeing eyes. A man dying in blindness. 
Bible says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able, listen, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that's why when the Word is proclaimed, some walk out believing and some walk out rejecting. Because the very simple reading of the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God, messes with our hearts. And either causes the heart to close up and say no, or to open up and say, yes, Lord. It is a powerful, supernatural Word that He has given. And depending upon how the listener responds, we will either have faith or hardness. The hardening of Israel. There were many heartbreaking moments in Paul's ministry. This was one of them, I'm convinced, as he watched the Jewish leaders of his own people leave. He saw some look back and go, I get it. I'm seeing this, Paul. Others who turned and walked out, never to receive the Lord again, the hardening of Israel. But, listen, good news, there is also hope in these words. Hope in these words? Look at verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 6. Otherwise, he said, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. It might happen. It will happen. Paul knows it's going to happen. He declares that in Romans 11.26. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Well, how does that work? We'll talk about that when we get into Romans next. But what must happen before the healing of Israel takes place? The times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles must conclude, must be fulfilled. Verse 28, back in Acts 28. Therefore, let it be known to you, Paul says as they're leaving, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Number six, the hearing of the Gentiles. The hearing of the Gentiles. Paul doesn't declare this to upset the Jews, but to inform them of the plan that was now fully underway. As he will say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And I point that out because Paul stayed true to this through his entire ministry. Every town he went to, he went first to the Jews, first to the synagogue. If they received him, if they heard the word, praise the Lord. Most of the time, all of the time, they did not. A handful would... And that handful that would, would follow Paul to somewhere else where he would then continue to teach in the town to the Gentiles. It was always Jew and then Gentile. But now Paul says the gospel's not stopping. You cannot stop the forward movement of the gospel. It is going out to the Gentiles. It will go on here, go on from Rome. So Paul, under house arrest for the hope of Israel, calls for the Jews who express hostility against the church. Paul then exposes the hardening of Israel, which prophetically offers the healing of Israel, but not before the hearing of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. Our times. 
Right now. These are the times of the Gentiles. Jesus said Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are concluded. And Jerusalem continues to be trodden underfoot. Continues to be the, the hot spot, the source of the, of the trembling, the cup of trembling itself, Zechariah says. Number seven, which finally brings us to the unhindered gospel. Verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, note this, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Now you would think being clapped in irons would hinder the gospel. That's the way to stop it. We'll stop Paul. We'll just tie him to a soldier. But Luke's open-ended finale to this book shows us that the gospel goes on unhindered. I love the use of the word. What happened to Paul? Because after this we will get his letters, but his letters all came before this moment. All except one. All come before what happens to Paul? Well, what happened to Paul? Eusebius tells us that he was released. He was under house arrest for two years. He stood before Nero, who, after hearing Paul, released him because there's no case against him. But Paul got an audience with Nero. Crazy Nero, who really wasn't showing the signs of insanity. Brutality, yes. Insanity, not yet. Until the exact year that Paul stood before him. What did Paul say to Nero? I would venture to guess the same thing he said to Festus and Felix and Agrippa and all the others. The kingdom and Jesus. I guarantee you, with an audience before Nero, Paul was preaching the gospel. And in that year, A.D. 64, Nero went insane. He began his incendiary persecution against the Christians in Rome. You may know the stories. They're legendary. Gathering up Christians, having them arrested, brought into his gardens. He would dip them in hot wax and put them up on poles around the garden. And then he would ride in the nude on his chariot through the gardens at night with all these Christians who were wax figures now set ablaze. While he screamed, I am the light of the world! I am the light of the world! Completely nuts. And I think, and I can't prove it, just my opinion, but I think he heard the Word. And the Word got into his heart. And the Word exposed him for who he was. And rather than receiving the grace and compassion of Jesus, he rejected outright anything having to do with Jesus and began his rampage of the church at Rome. But Eusebius tells us that after Paul was released, he actually traveled on up into Spain and even further into Europe, as far as some believe, as far as Bosnia today, preaching the gospel, sharing the truth, the kingdom and Jesus. And that actually fits in with Paul's second letter to Timothy, the only letter that would be written later. 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul says, At my first defense, no one supported me. My first defense... 
But all deserted me, may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles, that is all the ethnos, all the nations, might hear. And Paul says, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Some believe the lion's mouth spoke specifically of Nero. I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. I was rescued from mighty Rome. And so Eusebius in his church history tells us that Paul then actually was released and left Rome and went on to Spain and further into Europe, but was arrested again, brought back to Rome. And this time he was not given a rental apartment with a Roman centurion or soldier with him. No, this time he was thrown into a dungeon awaiting execution because by now Nero was nuts. And so Paul from that dungeon penned his last epistle, his final letter to young Pastor Timothy. And he said in that letter, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. And shortly after writing that, Paul was taken from that cell to the chopping block where he was beheaded in 68 A.D. But we have to go outside of Scripture to get that history. It's not absolutely certain. It's what was handed down by oral tradition, came down finally to Eusebius who would write it for us. So what really happened to Paul? Luke doesn't say. The Holy Spirit doesn't go there. He did not inspire Luke to write anything else. Instead, he inspires Luke to write exactly as he began. In fact, the last verse of Acts is like a bookend with the first verse of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's the bookend at the beginning. Well, what did Jesus begin to do and teach? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's Paul's message. It began with Jesus. And here at the end of the book of Acts, we get Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus and the kingdom. The mission. The message. Our mission. And as I've said before, the reason this book is open-ended is because we are still in it. Chapters are still being written. What are your set of verses? How will they read? What will the history include of your life related to Jesus and the kingdom? The book has not been closed, gang. Now, I promised my my brother Ray I would read the last two verses in the King James translation. So let me do that for you before we go tonight. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Unhindered, 
No one forbidding him. May no man, no woman, no lack of confidence or conviction forbid us from preaching the kingdom of God or from teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you have laid out the mission so clearly and so succinctly. The kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you've made it simple. Now, send us out to complete the mission. Send us from here, from this place tonight, with prayers on our lips for the lost. With a renewed anointing and determination to speak the gospel. A renewed boldness even to hold people captive if we need to do it, Lord. To take them to coffee with handcuffs in our pocket. And Lord Jesus, to make use of every opportunity for the days are evil, we know that, but the gospel is good. May we live for Jesus and the kingdom, Father, by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, Spencer... Spencer Headley, many of you know, uh, they're, they're, he's in Israel right now, he and John Linus, and, and Spencer, when he comes back, is turning around, and, and he and Barb are moving to Florida. And Spencer's been with the bridge as long as I can remember, you know. He's kind of like a recliner in the second row. He's just always there, furniture. And I love Spencer. But several years ago, I started to realize what he was doing. Maybe he did it to some of you. He would take people up in his plane... Under the guise of teaching them how to fly. And once they were up there, he would not let them land until they let him tell them about Jesus. He held them captive. You know what? You can do it with with good nature and good humor. But don't shy away. Don't shy away from sharing the gospel. It is the only hope of this lost world. So let's give it to them. Amen.